<laughs> okay, so happy Easter. He's risen. He's risen indeed. It's great, isn't it, to, to be together today on this um, Easter morning. Now, uh, almost four years ago, something uh, terrible actually, uh, but also something quite amazing happened here in Southampton about four years ago this week. Anyone got any clues what it might be? Let me give you a clue. It involved um, actually a tragedy, a tragic death and a heroic rescue. Not ringing any bells yet? It involved a nuclear submarine. Oh, yeah, okay, remember it? No, anyone remember it? There was a shooting that that naval, guy, that naval personnel officer or rating went mad and shot somebody and Royston, uh, the leader of the council, wrestled the guy to the ground and uh, overpowered him. Now where is the best place to find about that? About what happened and why? Well, can you see that? That's the website, that's BBC News, on the day after or round and about. Up there quite quickly, you, you get the information, don't you? Of course, there was a public inquiry later and actually only reported relatively recently. And that gave us some, some depth into it and we understood the larger significance. But, but what people said about that event nearest to the time, it never gets wiped out, does it? We may get deeper knowledge, but actually what we have, we want to really know what happened and get to know about why we go back as far as possible to the event itself, don't we? Otherwise, we might have all forgotten it, as most of us had, in fact. Now, today, we're celebrating the events, something that happened on the first Easter morning. We're talking about Jesus being raised from the dead. And that is, if you think about it, an astonishing event, isn't it? If it's true, it's utterly mind-blowing, gobsmacking, as we used to say. Don't say that so much these days. But, you know, what it's about is really significant. And if we're going to really get that, we need to go uh, as near to the event as possible. And we're, in a moment or two, we're going to be thinking about what the disciples of Jesus were saying about this event just a few weeks after it happened. They were on the streets of Jerusalem telling everyone all about it. Uh, and one of the New Testament writers, Luke, he wrote a gospel and he wrote a book called uh, A Gospel is a Biography of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and so on. And then he wrote another book called Acts. Uh, and it gives us an account of what went on. And this, this man, Luke, we know is a historian. He was also a doctor. He was a physician. Uh, he was the kind of a doctor that basically looked at people to find out what was wrong with them. And listened to what people said to find out how to treat them. He had extremely uh, uh, honed and, uh, and developed observation and remembering skills as a physician. Imagine being a physician in the first century. No scans, no x-rays. 
no tests, no blood tests. How do you treat people? Well, uh, amazing, you you cook up something involving cow's bile and all that kind of stuff and create something that, well, you know that story in the the news this week? They discovered a, a, anyway, that's, I've gone off piece, back to the thing. Um, You'd have these excellent observation skills. So who better to give us this account than someone with that kind of skill base, as it were. And he's the one who gives us uh, Acts and, uh, uh, and Luke's gospel. And we're going to look into what he said. He wrote it up from eyewitness accounts, uh, and we're going to see that it's exciting to just get hold of what the early disciples themselves had to say about what happened at Easter. For us to get the truth of it for ourselves... Because we may be thinking, well, is it true? And if it's true, how might it affect me? You may be thinking that. Or if we've already understood it to be true, well, our kind of job is to share that with everybody, isn't it? Out on the streets, not of Jerusalem, but of where we are. And I hope we might be helped in that. But let's start off by reading what, they actually, what it actually says. And we're looking into the book of Acts, and it's on uh, page 1093. Um, and it's Acts chapter 2. Uh, verse 22 to 39. It might come up on the screen, I, I'm not sure, but if you want it, you can follow it in the, the Bible here. And this is the Apostle Peter, one of the disciples, the one who'd betrayed Jesus not six weeks earlier. Now he's on the streets uh, addressing a crowd of people who gathered and giving them an explanation. Verse 22. Men of Israel, he says, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, uh, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David, that's one of their Old Testament writers of, of part of the Bible in the, in the Psalms. David said, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ or the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact, exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Holy Spirit the promise, sorry, he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, says Peter, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? 
Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Well, that's what they said. That was the earliest explanation of these events. What happened, but particularly why and what it meant. But hey, can we trust this? Is it really possible for us to to base our beliefs, our lives even, on these accounts in this document? Well, let's think a bit about that. Because that's, you might be thinking, well, all very well, you know, you're quoting the Bible at me. But how do I know I can believe it? How do I know I can take it seriously? Well, experts reckon, and it's not really disputed now, that the document itself, Luke's document that we've just read from, was written before A.D. 64. Okay? A.D. 64. Documents completed within 30 years of Jesus' death and available from that time. And they, they work that out because of the absence in, Luke, in, Acts, in Acts of, the book of Acts of very key events that had happened by AD 64, like the death of Paul and the death of Peter. Two of the key figures in Acts, the book of Acts were dead by at that time, the early 60s AD. Luke doesn't mention them. When we leave Luke's uh, Acts apostles, Paul is still alive, a prisoner in Rome. There's no mention of Nero's persecution. There's no mention of the destruction of Jerusalem. These are events that Luke would have mentioned as a historian had they happened. Unless, of course, he's deliberately, you know, trying and the, the whole thing is a hoax. Which, of course, it might be. But anything's possible. We have to kind of look at the balance of evidence here, don't we? More than, more than that, Luke's an excellent historian. Can we trust Luke? Uh, so William Ramsey was an archaeologist in the golden age of uh, archaeology when they just went around digging up the Middle East, willy-nilly, as you might say, in about the late 19th century, early 20th century. And so William Ramsey uh, went around the, uh, uh, what he called um, uh, the Macedonian area uh, and dug, dug it up to try and prove Luke wrong. This is what he says of him. You may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historians and they stand the keenest scrutiny and hardest treatment. He started skeptical, he started digging, and everywhere he checked, it, it was right with, with what you could tell from archaeology about Luke, uh, Luke's descriptions of the ancient world. He's a creditable historian. These speeches in the early chapters, that, like the one we've just read, show signs of being sourced right from the very time of the events. If you translate them into the language Peter spoke, Aramaic, they all, you know, they're very good Aramaic. We know Jesus taught his, his disciples by teaching them to remember stuff. That's how rabbis taught. It's very possible as Luke, who wasn't here in this part of Acts, but as Luke did his research, he got hold of people who were there, knew it, remembered it, and gave it to him, and he, he translated it into Greek, the word that the, the language we have the New Testament in, from that Aramaic. How long does it take for mythology to develop? 
If it's all, you know, a great idea that, you know, the Christian church, oh, marvelous, wouldn't it be fantastic if, if Jesus came back from the dead? Do you know how long it takes for mythology to develop? Well, a professor, um, A.N. Sherwin-White of Oxford, at one point did some research on this very precise thing using the writings of Herodotus. He reckoned it takes two generations, really, for a myth to really gain traction. The New Testament is all complete long before the first generation has gone. So what I'm trying to say is what we've just read, what you've just read from the Bible, is likely to have come to us from close to the events through a reliable historian. Something big had happened in Jerusalem. Actually, what Peter is talking about, what caused the crowd together, is not the resurrection. Something else had happened Some strange events where the disciples began speaking other languages and the power of God was in a unique way in their place. And a a crowd gathers together to to kind of, because it's all a bit weird, you know, what's going on? We can hear all these strange supernatural events happening. And as the crowd gather, Peter kind of stands up and says, because they were saying, these people, they must be drunk to behave like this. And Peter's saying, no, look, let me tell you what's going on. And then this is the the kind of uh, account he gives. So that's kind of the background. Now, had people forgotten about Jesus in Jerusalem in these six weeks? Well, possibly. Probably not completely. They'd heard stories, but it had all gone quiet. Now there's this strange event, and there's disciples are out there telling them that Jesus is raised from the dead. This is the first time it's shared out in the open. The first time, if you like, people who are outside the Christian community get to hear of it. And it's time for them, it's time for Jerusalem to face up to something really big. Are we ready for that? To face up to something this big? If you're not yet a believer, let me ask you, are you ready to be willing at least to face up to this? If we are followers of Jesus, do we, do we kind of get just how big this is, the resurrection? Because it is the most amazing truth and it touches our lives. It's for our world. Now on that day, these people were faced with three important realities. And we need to face the same three for ourselves. Here they come. Here's the first one. They need to face the big claim. Verse 22, Peter starts to talk to them and he says, Listen, I'm talking to you all about Jesus of Nazareth. They've heard of him. They remember what he did. He reminds them. Peter reminds them. He says God did amazing things through him. And what he's saying is that this Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, he's from Nazareth. That's, you know, he's a real historical person. He came from a real place. He did real things. And in fact, he's appealing to the crowd. And, and, and you know, they knew. You know, no one said, never heard of him. Or, what are you talking about? Or, you know, he, he was appealing to them because they knew he'd been around. He'd been crucified six weeks earlier. A historical person. Now, in one sense, if that's where they were at, that's also where we're at, isn't it? Except we're a few hundred years afterwards, but we're still faced up with a historical person. 
talking about a real person. Now, you, some of you have been aware we've had this campaign, Because He Nailed It, you know, the hashtag Because He Nailed It. I don't know whether you've been following it. We've had a bit of criticism of it from different people, you know, putting stuff like that on Twitter just for some people to say, come on, come and hit us, you know, and a few people have come and hit us. Um, but that's okay. That's their right to do so. We live in a country where there's free speech. But one person put, uh, put this up. I don't know whether you saw it in the Daily Mail. I don't read the Daily Mail, and I'm proud of it. And, uh, but you may, and maybe you saw this. This is in, in the Daily Mail the other day, saying, uh, quoting some atheists, um, uh, writing, saying that there was no record of Jesus at all outside of the Gospels. He couldn't have existed. This was saying this, he couldn't have been a real person because no other historical accounts exist of Jesus other than the Gospels. That's in the Daily Mail. Why bother to read the Daily Mail, I ask you. And I'll tell you why, because of this. There is Tacitus in AD 64, a Roman historian who writes about Jesus. There's Josephus, a Jewish historian who's writing from AD 70 and also tells us about Jesus. There's something called the Babylonian Talmud. I'm not sure what that is, but anyway, it it, it stretches from about AD 70 onwards for several hundred years. That document is a Jewish document, talks about the existence of Jesus. There's Pliny, who was a governor in the Roman Empire, writes a letter to the Emperor Trajan in AD 112, which also mentions Jesus and his followers and why they do what they do and why they believe what they believe. And then a satirist, uh, always good, you know, the, I suppose the equivalent you know, of, uh, of I Got News For You in the Greek world at the time, uh, is, is, is writing a, a kind of comedy piece or a satirical piece about uh, uh, Jesus. Well, it mentions Christians and that they followed Jesus, uh, a man called Lucian, in the hundreds. If you want to follow that up further, go onto the web, find this uh, uh, website, Be Thinking. Um, uh, I can put a link on uh, our Facebook page afterwards if you want to, but Ancient Evidence for Jesus from Non-Christian Sources, it's all listed there, you can follow the links. Wrong. Jesus isn't a historical person? No mention of him outside the Gospels? Wrong. <laughs> Completely wrong. So you can't trust what you read in the newspapers, can you? Whether I won't say anything about one or another in newspaper. So these people, Peter talks to, know that Jesus lived. They know that he did great things. And so do we, don't we? I mean, just think about it. Think about the event. Where would he have come from? Who could have made Jesus up? If Jesus didn't say these amazing things that he said, who did say them? Some committee of theologians sitting around the 4th century thinking, oh, what did he say? It doesn't read like that. It doesn't come across like that at all. No, not at all. Look, uh, you, look at what people have done with this life, you know, the core material about Jesus' life. I mean, Tony Jordan, the guy who created EastEnders and Hustle, okay? He wrote the Nativity. Remember the BBC Nativity? He approached the gospel accounts of the Nativity as a dramatist and as a, a kind of uh, person, not as a Christian. He wrote it, he said, he was just overwhelmed by the fact that it all just seemed to be true. Because, you know, you, you put the stories together. It has this, you know, whichever way you look at it, it's got this kind of mark of authenticity about it. Nobody uh, in the first century and beyond denied Jesus' power to do miracles. Nobody did, because too many people had seen them. They criticized him. They, there are many writings about uh, how he, he did them through the power of evil, but nobody said, no, they made it up afterwards. They couldn't do that. You see, 
people who don't want to believe in Jesus, living you know, 2,000 years later, have the luxury of, making, of saying, he couldn't have done them because we don't believe in miracles. But if you actually are there in the first century, where there's hundreds, if not thousands of people have eaten the bread and eaten the fish or had their relatives healed or even in some cases raised from the dead, you don't have the luxury of saying, that can't have happened, do you? Because there are too many people around who know that it did happen. And that's the context in which Peter is declaring this to the people in Jerusalem. That's the key. So if we look at the evidence ourselves, Jesus teaching, his claims, his character, as we put all those three things together and say, how does that work? That he taught these things, he claimed these things about himself, and he was this amazing person? Well, you know, what do we do with that? Anyway, that's what Peter is saying. He's telling the people about Jesus being a real person. And then he tells them that you crucified him. That he said, you handed him over to lawless men, was another word for the Romans, basically. He said, you handed him over to the Romans, and they executed him. But then comes the biggest claim of all in verse 24. God raised him from the dead. It's in that context, Peter is saying, you crucified him, God raised him from the dead. It says in verse 24, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. This is big. This is huge, isn't it, when you think about it? And it explodes on these people. That phrase, the agony of death, has a kind of reference to uh, pregnancy and childbirth. It's like the labor pains of death. And the people in the crowd who believed in a resurrection, the Jewish people who did, not all of them did, but that's another story, but those who did would have heard that. "Mm," Because they understood death as like, the beginning of a, a long labor, as it were, which on the resurrection day, when God brings the, the righteous to life, would be birth. And when Peter says God uh, freed him from the agony of death, he's saying something that those people would have understood. They would have heard that at the end of time, Peter is saying, Jesus kind of, in his resurrection, brought the resurrection that's going to happen at the end of time, right into now, in his own kind of, through the cross and his own resurrection. That's, what's the, that's a big claim. So they're faced with these big claims. And so are we, aren't we? Jesus was here from God. He was doing things through God. We killed him. God raised him. Big claims. But that brought some big questions. That's the second big thing I want us to face. Big questions. They had big questions when they heard that. They must have done. Well, we know they did because Peter starts to answer, answer them. They had big questions about how they thought God would work. And what Peter had just told them about the resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't fit with what they were expecting as good Jews of the, uh, uh, at that time. So that's why he takes them into the Old Testament scriptures to help them to see from their own scriptures that God would bring a king like their great hero David to be a king again. The Messiah was what they called. The Christ just means Messiah. It was a reference to this anointed king, this king who would come. Now I'm not going to go into that now, but the point is that Peter is saying to the Jewish people, Hey, I know you've got questions, and your questions are partly about how you think God should work. And Peter's saying to them, 
careful. God may be working, and he's made it clear, you need to understand it more carefully for yourself. And for us, let's be careful that we don't miss it, because we think that God is only going to work in the way that we expect him to do. If we think God is a nice kind of Santa Claus, Victorian kind of figure, or if we think God is going to be just, just somebody who's nice to everyone all the time. If you think that God couldn't possibly have allowed um, his son or uh, the one that he loved to be crucified on a cross. So we reject it for all kinds of reasons sometimes because of about the way God works. And Peter's telling the people to, to be careful of that. And we need to be careful of that too. But obviously they've had questions as well about how the world works. Because they were like us. And and another way for how the world works, I would say, is because I'm not one, is science, isn't it? Science is the observation and discovery and working out how the world works. And they knew, just as well as we do, (laughs) that resurrections don't happen. They're, They're not normal events, are they? We don't have resurrections in our world. And I don't think they were any more gullible, or le- more gullible than we are. They would have had just as many questions about whether a resurrection could indeed have happened as we do. And Peter begins to address those things. Peter tells them that the, the disciples are eyewitnesses of the resurrection. He says, we are witnesses of that. We've seen him. We know it to be true. And he's saying there is eyewitness evidence of the resurrection. He realizes that it's not easy for them to grasp. But they were people who knew that if there was a God, he could intervene. Are you willing to accept that? If God exists, he could break his own rules, if you like. Otherwise, what's the good of being God if you can't do that with the physical world, I suppose? And so a miracle is, a, is what happens when God does something outside of the norm of the way the world usually works. He can do that. He's free to do that. And he chooses to do that on some occasions. There'll be more on this in a minute. But they also had questions about wanting to believe it. You know, they didn't want to believe that. And sometimes that's our issue as well. You see, if Jesus has really been raised from the dead, where will that put us? What kind of changes in our thinking, in our lives, in our behavior may have to come as a result of that? There's an atheist writer called Thomas, uh, either Nagel or Nagel, or does anyone know how you pronounce his surname? N-A-G-E-L, anyway. He said this, quite honest. I respect his honesty. He said, I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. This is all I put on the screen. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I am right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want a universe like that. And sometimes we have questions about, I don't really want this to be true. Not all of it, because of what it might mean for me. And uh, he is uh, honest enough to say that. Now, Peter faces these questions with evidence. And there are three streams of evidence that he brings. And I'm just going to highlight them. There's not time, but you can follow all of this up. 
The first thing is that there is historical evidence. He says, we are eyewitnesses. They can talk about it there and then. It can be established as fact right away. You know, Peter stood there with the other 11 and a few other disciples. He said, okay, uh, you don't believe me? I'll tell you about it. You know, come up after us, we'll have a chat. They would all have been able to say the same thing. They were eyewitnesses of this event. And it could be established as fact from that. But it's key. There were witnesses then. And even though we're not kind of with them at the time, because unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, for the health and lots of other things about living in the 21st century, it's a long time ago. And we can't meet those eyewitnesses for ourselves. But the fact that there were so many is very important. And, and the fact that um, there was no body is significant. If Jesus wasn't uh, raised from the dead, where was the body? Who had it? What happened? What are the alternatives? And many people have done lots of work and, and, and really faced it honestly and come to the conclusion that actually, looking at the evidence, the best explanation, honestly, is to conclude that he did rise from the dead. As I said before, there's no time for a myth to generate We know Paul, we know for absolutely certain that the Apostle Paul was in Corinth telling people Jesus rose from the dead in AD 52. Jesus died in about AD 33. That's 19 years from the event. Now, some of you are young and thinking, well, that's a long time ago. But tell you, when, you know, I'm 59, I was 40 19 years ago. If someone told me that, uh, uh, you know, if someone had been raised from the dead 40 years ago, uh, uh, and um, 19 years ago, rather, Uh, I'd have known about it. I could have said, yeah, I either saw that or I didn't. And Paul, when he writes 1 Corinthians a bit later in the AD 50s, is saying, there were witnesses. Loads of people saw him. One occasion, there were 500 at once. They could all be appealed to. Lots of things. If you want to check this out, can I encourage you to go to a site like this? This There's a Facebook page called God New Evidence. Just find it, and, and on that, there's, there's, uh, there's another uh, God New Evidences that has a website, and it has about, oh, I don't know, loads of series of 10-minute videos with experts and putting the evidence and explaining it all. It's also, by the way, translated into Chinese. There's one called Life After Death, a whole series of videos translated into Chinese if you want to follow it up in the Chinese section. Go and find that, explore that, listen to it. There is evidence, check it out. Or read a book like um, some of Lee Strobel's books and so on. So there's that evidence. But there's also evidence in their experience because Peter talks about God at work in the life of Jesus. He says that you know that God did these things in front of these people. He also talks in this passage about what you now see and hear, he says to them. What were they seeing and hearing, these people? They were seeing that God was doing something amazing in the experience of the disciples. This supernatural sign of them being able to speak languages that other people could understand. And beyond that, this sense of God being there. And the people had seen that there was evidence in their experience. And for us, as well as historical evidence, there's evidence in in God, working in people. Prayers get answered. Not always how we think, but we know God helping us. You may know people who've been changed or have been given amazing help in certain situations. There are whispers in all kinds of circumstances. I was talking to somebody a while ago, two or three, four years ago. Who about his, he wasn't quite, uh, uh, you know, fully kind of, I don't think, 
uh, on the journey to faith totally in a, a clear and completed, shall I say, not that we ever really complete it way, but I think he has now. But anyway, um, talking about his experience and how it all started, he said, I was traveling on my own and I just knew somehow God was with me and I never, yeah, it was a bit, it was wonderful, but it was a bit strange. It was a bit weird. I don't know whether you ever used to watch that show years ago called, was it called 999? Was it that show that people who'd been rescued used to give them accounts? And how many of them said, well, I, you know, I was half a mountain, I was going to die, and I, I actually I said a prayer, and, you know, something happened, or, do you know what I mean? They're, now, they're, they're only little things, but evidence may be in your life. The Bible says God is not far from any one of us. And lots of us have these little whispers of evidence that God is real, that he's around, that he is interested, that he's not just a vague idea. There's evidence there. Christianity, um, oh, sorry, yeah, so I must get on, yeah. So man here called Francis Spufford, I think that's how you pronounce his surname, wrote a book called Unapologetic. I think it's a great book. Uh, it defends Christianity. Uh, if you bit read it and you don't like swearing, don't read it because there's quite a lot of swearing in it. Uh, and he's kind of on his way and he's defending Christianity. But he makes some very, very interesting points. The whole point of his, his book is that Christianity makes honest sense of life as it is. You see, he gets to the first chapter. He's furious. He's angry. That's why he swears quite a lot about this kind of stuff. I think, can you see that? You're the new atheists that say, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. And he says, yeah, okay, that's fine, but most of us don't enjoy our lives. He says, what about the person in the bus stop, who's, who, uh, as, as the bus goes by, who's just had a diagnosis of cancer? Or is on their way home to look after their uh, relative with dementia? Or who's longing for something to come good in their life? He said, this is hopeless. It's rubbish. Because most of us don't enjoy life that much all of the time. And what he's saying is Christianity speaks exactly into that at that point. And that's his starting point. And he goes on to tell of his experience that for him began. A first step for him was, was knowing somehow that God was there. And then responding to that. It's a first step. But it's an important first step. Don't ignore that evidence that may be right in your life now. You just go and brush off and say, woo, that was a bit spooky. Maybe it's God. It's evidence. Follow it. And there's evidence of God's word. You see, as you continue on the steps, the next step is to look into God's word. That's how we interpret those spiritual experiences to read one of the Gospels, if you like. Um, there'll be some at the back if you want. Get involved in Christianity, explored. Uh, ask God to speak to you through his word. Come to church, this one or some other one, where the Bible is kind of uh, it's taught and spoken about. Expose yourself to that. Face the big claim. The big claim. Finally, the big implications. You see, Peter has made it pretty clear, hasn't he? He says, it's personal. He says, you put him to death. And for those people right there, they probably had done through the Romans. It's where we were on Good Friday as we reflected on it together then. These people probably were among the crowd who said, crucify him. 
Let Barabbas go. We don't want this man to be our king. Crucify him. Those people hearing Peter then had probably said those things, some of them. But there's more to it than that, isn't it? It's not just them, is it, if we're really honest? Jesus dies at the hands of people like us. People just like us. They weren't hardened criminals. They were just ordinary people. Once the mob gets going, we all join in. Something in us chooses to kind of go away from God. That's why it's so easy to join the mob. Crying for his death. We all join in. There's a song we sang it on on, uh, uh, Friday. It was my sin that nailed him there. What's wrong in us is what nailed him to the cross. That's a contemporary song. 400 years ago, someone wrote a a hymn in German which says, I crucified you. We sang that also actually on on Friday night. Bach put it into one of his, uh, some of his choral works. And the hymn uh, written in about 1600 in itself is drawing on what St. Augustine said quite a few hundred years before. Ancient or modern, the point is, we come to see that we're responsible. We know what God wants us to be. It's in the Ten Commandments. We know what we'd like to be. Even if you don't accept God's rules, you've got certain standards for yourself. Do you meet them? Do you end every day thinking, I'm glad there's nothing more today that I could have done to be the person I want to be? Don't I don't. Perhaps you do. Tell me the secret afterwards if that's the case that's why we're tempted peter says we've got something wrong in us and it led to the death of the son of god but it also goes on to say god is working jesus is lord of all peter says that god has a plan to do something amazing through jesus death and resurrection jesus has become the king he is the messiah he is the lord and christ it says there in verse 36 therefore let all israel be assured of this god has made this jesus whom you crucified both lord and christ why lord what's that word lord brought to the table he's been going on about jesus being the messiah the christ well you know who else was called lord caesar Peter's saying Jesus' kingship is that big. He's bigger than Caesar. He's bigger than everything. You don't want to miss that implication. Do we get that? And if we do get that we're responsible for the death of the Son of God, if we really get that Jesus is Lord of all, then we'll want to know what to do about it. That's what these people did. That's why in verse 38 they say, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, look, there's a promise here for everyone. He talks about the promises for you, verse 39, and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord will call to him. So anyone who hears God speaking to them, anyone who comes when they say, yes, I, I get the evidence. Yes, I can respond to that. To anyone, not just the Jewish nation, everyone, there's this promise. What's the promise of? He says, forgiveness, you will be forgiven and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's life, God's life in us is promised 
through what Jesus has done because he is the Lord, the King. He was raised from the dead. How does that come into our lives? It's there in these verses uh, in verse 38. Repent, says Peter, and believe. What does repent mean? It means to turn away from what's wrong in our lives, our rebellion against God, to admit that I've messed up and I want God's forgiveness. And to believe, to trust him for this new life. Ask for his forgiveness. And then we begin a new life with him. Peter says, you get baptized. Baptism, not the thing about being baptized. It's what it symbolizes. The rest of the New Testament tells us it symbolizes the beginning of a new life with Jesus. A continuing to walk and learn and grow and develop and carry on with Jesus as our Lord and as our King. There's a phrase in a song we sometimes sing, uh, a life spent with you. It's a great way of describing what following Jesus is a life spent with him as we turn from trusting ourselves as we welcome him into our life as we ask him for his forgiveness and we we say Lord I'm going to follow you as my Lord and my God my master so let's face the big claim let's face the big questions and let's face the personal implications this Easter Easter shows us two things at least First of all, it shows us our messed upness, you know, what's wrong, our sin, our rebellion against God. What led Jesus to the cross? Not just that that people killed him in rebellion, but his love in that act of sacrifice, he secured a way that we could be forgiven and welcomed. Because it also shows God's powerful love, dealing with our sin at the cross and then raising Jesus so that we can be forgiven and enter into life with him. That's what Easter Sunday celebrates. It's what every Sunday celebrates. It's actually why Christian believers in the New Testament started meeting, not on Saturdays like all the Jews did, but on Sundays. Because it was a reminder every Sunday of what Jesus had done. We're going to listen and reflect. We've got time for that. Yeah, to uh, a song. Uh, The words will come up. It's a song that kind of takes us through the whole Easter kind of sequence, really. Enjoy the words and just listen to it. Starts with Jesus dying on the cross and it moves on to him being the king, God's king over all. And maybe as you hear it, you might want to just quietly say something to God in prayer for yourself. Welcome him. Ask him into your life. Turn and trust in him as we continue. Thanks, Rob.